Um, Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry. And saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. We are just one Sunday away from the final sermon on the Psalms. We've uh, been doing this for over a month now. Uh, The Psalms are much bigger than a month-long or month-and-a-half-long series, but we chose key Psalms to illustrate the Psalter, uh, and this is the next-to-last sermon. Next week, Scott Ketro will be wrapping it up for us, preaching from Psalm 150. For those of you who um, are interested in languages, you, you might, oh, I don't know, be intrigued by what I'm about to say. I remember learning the Hebrew alphabet when I was just a child. Now, I can't remember the exact age that I was because my mother is in memory care and she can't remember for me. My father's passed away. But I remember how it came to be. Just a minute. I like to look at people, and that music stand is right in the way. Hang on just a second. Now I can see you. (laughs) But at any rate, I I remember how I learned the Hebrew alphabet. My father was in graduate school, and as a part of graduate school, he had to study Hebrew and learn to read it. So I can remember sitting on his lap in the basement while he went over the Hebrew alphabet. Now back then, and I remember doing this with Greek as well, we had these little cards we made up. They were like flashcards. And on one side was 
the English, and on the other side was the Hebrew or the Greek. So I sat with him, and I went through the Hebrew alphabet. I think he, he was intrigued by how quickly a young boy could pick it up, because we always can. And still to this day, I remember the Hebrew alphabet. I say that because it's very intriguing to me that this psalm, Psalm 145, is arranged in what is called an acrostic. Each new verse or stanza in the psalm is introduced with the Hebrew alphabet, a letter from the Hebrew alphabet, much like Psalm 119, except you don't see it in our English text. It's deeply embedded, the Hebrew alphabet, in this psalm. It's also the last psalm of David in the Psalter. After this, the psalms of follow are not by David. And it's also a psalm about praise of God. But more specifically, at least I think, is praise for God the King. It begins at the outset saying God is the absolute king, the ruler of all things. Praise his holy, mighty name. We as Americans and really as many people around the world and other parts of the world, we have a, both a fascination and a disdain of monarchy absolute rulers. In spite of our disdain of monarchy, there were 18.8 million people who watched the coronation of King Charles in England. Now, all of those, obviously, were not British. They were people on this side of the pond, people to the south, people to the north, people to the east. People were fascinated by this coronation, this transfer of power. Now, some viewed it, as you might expect, as a symbol of British stability. King Charles and his mother before him stood out as a stabilizing factor in the otherwise volatile world of political machinations. The king, the queen. That, that's a positive view of the monarchy. Um, some viewed it as sort of a quaint, antiquated, bygone era, a relic of sorts. And their fascination was that. Other people, even in the crowd along the street, viewed it with extreme cynicism. They were very critical of the monarchy. They thought it expensive, opulent, unnecessary. What's it for? You hear all those things reverberating on the news when you watch this kind of an event. Here's my point. None of those criticisms, none of them, are present concerning kingship in this psalm. Not a single negative overtone about monarchy in this psalm. 
don't rush to conclusions. I'm not suggesting that we become a monarchy. But I am reminding you that the kingdom of God was a huge theme throughout the scriptures. It was the only form of government, except with a person under God's rule as king in Israel. The notion of democracy was not even an idea. Kingship was it. It's not only a dominant theme in the Old Testament, it's a dominant theme in the New Testament. More than 50 times the kingdom of God is specifically related to us in the scriptures called the New Testament. It was their singular form of government, but more importantly, this is critical to our understanding. That singular form of government for the kingdom of Israel had a perfect model in God the king. In other words, every king or ruler was judged according to the standard of divine monarchy. Well, whatever monarchies are today, whatever any government is today, it's unlikely that they view their standard as God the king. We view our standard in other ways. Prosperity. We may view our governmental standard as relates to things like we have a voice. We may view our governmental bureaucracies as awful. We have the power to vote in and out our leaders, but we do not have God as our model when it comes to our government. So when the psalm is written by David, the king of Israel, he understands monarchy. After all, he was the king. He was the supreme authority. But David stands under the role as an under-shepherd, an under-king for God. And that is his model. He judges himself, on occasion, very poorly. And he's judged by others according to God's ultimate kingship. How does this play out in Psalm 145? It plays out this way, at least this is how I will break it down with the help of commentators. The first seven verses, verses one through seven, speak about God the King, and they ascribe to him eternal praise. God the King is worthy of eternal praise. His greatness is unfathomable. You, you can't reach the limits of his greatness. It's eternal. It's huge. Frequently, the subjects of a king have a, an idea that somehow, even in human terms, somehow the king is greater in terms of his wisdom or the queen in terms of her wisdom than the commoners in the nation. Now, we know that's not altogether true. We know the king may have more 
information. We know the king may have been trained well. We know the king may have been wise. But it's not true to say that the king of any given nation is the most wise person in the nation. And certainly not the most righteous person in the nation. But in this psalm, we see something else. We see God being called the king. And we know that the king is ultimately wise and completely righteous. And the king is eternal. So he's due eternal praise. The praise that we give to this king should be unceasing, always, forever. This is not the only place we see this unceasing, always praise. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6, where the heavenly beings actually are bowing down to the center of the throne. We see it in Revelation chapter 4, almost the exact same language used concerning Christ the King. What's even more interesting than just the heavenly beings, although they're very exalted, and us, is that the psalmists on other occasions say that everything bows down and praises God the King. Um, For instance, Psalm 148, praise Him, angels, stars, clouds, ocean, creatures, land, animals, mountains, hills, trees, hail, wind. Oh, let me read it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all you shining stars. Praise Him you highest heavens and you waters above the sky. Let them, all of them, praise the name of the Lord for at His command they were created and He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Think about the images that come to your mind. Praise Him, lightning and hail and snow and clouds and stormy winds that do His bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth, all nations, you princes of all rulers on the earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens He has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of his faithful servants, O Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. Everything. Praise this mighty king. This praise is not just global and eternal. It goes on generationally, says the psalmist, or ought to. Because God is that worthy of praise that every generation should praise Him. One commentator I looked at this week, James Montgomery Boyce, um, put it this way. I, I found it striking. He said, praise is worship. Let, let me say it again. Praise is worship. 
It is acknowledging God to be what he truly is. The sovereign, holy, just, righteous, merciful, awesome, and majestic God. Worship is coming to God not to get things from him, though we are free to do that too. It is not even worship confessing our sins or pleading for grace, though these things flow from worship naturally. It is, he says, at its heart, it is acknowledging God to be God. That's it. He's absolutely worthy of praise, and that's the heart of worship. Everything else flows from it. His praise ought to be eternal and is, verses 1 through 7. His praise ought to be and is universal, verses 8 through 13. The praise of God is universal to be offered by all creatures. But in this section, he begins to give us an insight into why. Because he's gracious and compassionate and good to all. He's kind and generous. Your saints will extol you, the psalmist says, and speak of your mighty acts. Oh, by the way, have you ever thought of praise as being a form of evangelism? It seems like the psalmist suggests that. Why? Because When you praise saints, you proclaim God's mighty attributes and actions to the world. When you praise saints, you live in accordance with the cadence of God's revelation in your life. You have a different roadmap that you're following, a different beat from a different drummer, and all those acts of praise actually spread the gospel, the good news. In uh, Philippians, it suggests that we shine like stars in the universe. And how do we do this? Without arguing and complaining, but instead rejoicing always. Rejoicing in every circumstance. We praise God, and that's a form of evangelism. All this, the psalmist says, so that people may know your everlasting kingdom. The Lord is faithful. The generations speak of his faithfulness. Keep it going. So first we have eternal praise, second universal praise, and third rational praise. In other words, specifically, why praise? And this is where the psalmist breaks it down for us. He gives us the reasons to praise God, just some of them. He bows down. Here's a reason to praise God. He bows down so he could lift up those who are fallen. Why? He's God. 
He's got the universe in the palm of his hands. But as Psalm 139 said last week, he knows you. He shaped you in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he loves you so much that he stoops down and picks you up when you're fallen. I remember um, as a father teaching my kids how to ride a bike. You remember that, right? If you were a father. Uh, Training wheels and then taking them off. I don't see those training wheels so much anymore. Did anybody notice? They, don't, they do something else. They just kind of scoot themselves along and learn balance. I've seen it in my community. It's, it's a pretty cool alternative to training wheels, I think. But my point is, <laughs> how many times my son or my daughter tried to ride and didn't make it? And they tipped over and they skinned their elbow or they skinned their knee. And what did I do? You know what I did. I was running behind them anyway. I was there for them, trying to teach them. And if I couldn't catch them, I reached down and I picked them up. Most of the time, because they were crying and they were hurt. That's a picture of God. He bows down. His knowledge of us is incomprehensible, as we learned last week. He not only bows down, he feeds the hungry, And here he speaks of humans and animals alike. And in effect, he says, God feeds the hungry. God feeds the animals. God cares for the earth. God does all these things as kings. And though he doesn't refer to it here, when I see those words, I have to remember concerning myself That as a person made in the image of God, I should reflect this glorious king. So my caring should reflect God's caring. For people, for animals, for the earth, I am the person who has been given responsibility along with you to care for this world. The very earth we till is God's. And it's our responsibility to care for it and other people as he does. Third, he comes close to those who call upon him in truth. Like a father who's tender and compassionate, so the Lord is towards those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13. It's an insight into the close relationship that God has with those who love him. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that he says he comes close to those who call on him in truth. I don't suppose it means that you have to have it all right in order for God to respond. But surely it means that when you call after God... You're calling out to him because he's God. You're acknowledging your helplessness. You're acknowledging even your lack of understanding. You are, in effect, being humbled in order to call out. One of my favorite all-time passages from the confession, which I've quoted before, but I will again today. Augustine seemed to understand this truth. 
as he did so many others. And he said, you, Lord, who are high above us, look with favor on the humble. You look on the proud too, but from far off. You come close to humans who are humble at heart. The proud cannot find you, even though by dint of study they have the skill to number the stars and the grains of sand to measure the tracks of the constellation and trace the paths of the planets. You don't come to the brilliant God. You come to the humble. You come to those who acknowledge that you are king of kings and Lord of lords. You come in effect, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I feel like doing it. You come only to those who are face down in front of you. That's who you come to. And you come in compassion, mercy, and kindness. There's a a significant contrast to that right at the end. The psalmist reminds us that he watches over us, over those that he loves, but the wicked he punishes. I I, want to use that to transition to my conclusion. Uh, The first thing I want to say in conclusion is this. Remember what we just saw. God is the absolute king of the universe. We do not elect him, and we do not throw him out. He is king. We don't even have a vote. But we do have a choice. We can follow the king or be in rebellion. That's our choice. That's our only choice. Father, I follow you. Or Father King, I rebel against you. This king, not El Presidente Senator Representative, this king is absolutely worthy of our obedience, our honor, and our praise. Unequivocally. Whether we happen to like him or not in the moment, he's still worthy of our praise. Whether or not it seems like his doings are different than our doings, he's worthy of praise. Whether or not he calls us to these things and calls us not to be a part of those things, when it doesn't make any sense, he's worthy of our praise and our obedience. He is absolutely worthy, the sovereign over all things. Second, eventually, the wicked, the wicked will be judged. You cannot, my friends, you cannot, as some attempt to do, ignore the theme of wicked and punishment in the Scriptures. If you do ignore it, you have a distorted view of God. 
God will punish the wicked. And a final judgment is coming, according to the Scripture. I, I have no desire at this point to get into that topic and to try to explain its nuances or what judgment looks like. I, I just want to remind us that God is the judge. And he will judge the wicked. I want to remind us that justice someday will be executed completely, perfectly, and righteously. Because God is the king. And final point, I want us to hold those in tension. One of my great frustrations as a pastor slash Sounds too high and mighty theologian. Um, Our contemporary trends in theology. Um, I'm not saying they're all wrong. But they are what they are. They're trends. They're points of emphasis. And uh, at best... Those points of emphasis are corrective for things that are off kilter, shall we say. At worst, they become singular. And when they become singular, whatever the contemporary trend is, when they become singular, they distort our view of God. Because, my friends, God is far more complex than we will ever understand. And the complexity must be embraced in order for us to have a full-orbed view of God. Not that we'll ever understand fully. But if we release the tension, we are bound to lose. We must keep that tension in mind. We must embrace the tension, all kinds of tension, in order to fully and completely know God. So my, my final point um, relates to sermons. I have mentioned before to some people's chagrin that Every sermon is a mini-heresy. And you know why I say that? Not because what might have been proclaimed was actually inaccurate. But it was only one thing. And the history of doctrine and heresy in the church is an over-focus on one thing. So be aware of an overfocus on one thing. Be aware of it when you hear me proclaim the word of God as faithfully as I know how. Be aware of it. That's not all there is. The second thing I want to say about preaching is this. Preaching at at its best, is both theologically accurate and pastoral. So frequently when I stand and I try to exegete the Scriptures, 
I'm not just trying to figure out what the verse says and then come up with a conclusion. I'm trying to figure out what the text says as it applies to us and where we are. So routinely, I will make statements that for some people might seem like, ooh, that's a little off base. Just, just know this. Give me the graciousness to understand this. I know where a lot of you are living. And there are certain things on a certain Sunday that you need to hear. It's not the only thing you need to hear, but you need to hear it. There's some Sundays that you need to hear unequivocally about the unconditional love of God. There's other Sundays that you need to hear about the justice and the vengeance and the judgment of God. There's other times that you and I need to understand that Jesus Christ is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You know, to say that is not to dismiss the sovereign, eternal, grand nature of God. It is to say that that sovereign God is among us. So I pray that together as a community of faith, we will hear well, we will explore deeply, and that at the heart of everything we do, we will unconditionally praise the sovereign king of the universe. Let's pray. God, I thank you um, that our times are in your hands. I thank you that the ultimate decisions concerning our world are in your hands. I thank you that the, the, net, the notion of, of justice is in your hands. I also, Lord, thank you that we don't understand it all because it humbles us. So, Lord, no matter where we are, if we need your comforting touch, if we're alone, if we're sad, God, be our, our present friend. If you're, we're struggling mightily with sin, Lord, remind us of your great mercy. Lord, if we're if we're charting off on our own and we're trying to come up with our own ethic and our own reality, remind us that our reality must be grounded in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are the ultimate sovereign ruler, the wise one, and when we follow you, we find life. Thank you. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray.
Amen.